Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to this month's Chess Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the Chess Podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative discussion on molecular biomarker testing in lung cancer. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Fox and Silvestri as our guests, and we'll be discussing their article published in Chess entitled, Knowledge and Practice Patterns Among Pulmonologists for Molecular Biomarker Testing in Advanced Non-Small Lung Cancer. So we'll get our uh, guests to introduce themselves. Uh, we'll start with Dr. Fox. Adam? Hey there. Uh, my name is Adam Fox. I'm a pulmonologist at the Medical University of South Carolina, and I have a clinical focus caring for patients with lung nodules and lung cancer uh, and a growing health services research focus on utilis- utilization of biomarkers in lung cancer. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Adam. And we also have Dr. Silvestri. Hey, I'm Gerard Silvestri. I'm also a pulmonologist with a focus on lung cancer at the Medical University of South Carolina. I thank you guys for having us on. An absolute pleasure to have you both, and congratulations to both of you for uh, this publication in CHEST. Um, Gerard, I'm going to start with you. Um, Why is it so important that pulmonologists know about molecular biomarker testing in lung cancer? Yes, thank you, Dominique. Listen, it's it's actually critical, and I think uh, pulmonologists are starting to understand that. You know, 20 or 30 years ago when I started doing lung cancer, it was really just about uh, figuring out whether it was lung cancer. So we would do a bronchoscopy, and we would make a diagnosis, and largely these patients had advanced disease, and they either had small cell cancer or non-small cell cancer, which was generally uh, adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, or large cell carcinoma. And that would be the treatment paradigm. You either got treatment with chemotherapy or chemotherapy and radiation with platinum-based doublet um, for a non-small cell and then for small cell, a separate regimen um, and, you know, platinum etoposide and, and radiation if they were limited. Um, unfortunately for the lung cancer world, that has changed dramatically. And so now uh, patients have to get uh, targeted treatment if they're eligible for it. And if they're eligible for it, um, we, uh, we can give them treatments that can extend their life years, um, whereas uh, traditional chemotherapy, it was months. Pulmonologists are on the front end of that. We are uh, diagnosing and treating lung cancer, uh, diagnosing and staging lung cancer, largely using endobronchial ultrasound with fine needle aspiration. Um, and it is during that time that we're getting enough tissue to have a molecular analysis done for one of the eight or so FDA-approved drugs that are targets. And so if we don't get the, the tissue and if it's not properly tested, the patient would get tr- uh, a traditional chemotherapy and their life expectancy would be much shorter than if they were lucky enough to have one of those targets, uh, one of those molecular aberrations that we could have an FDA-approved targeted therapy for. So we are at the front end of this. We're the first person who sees these patients largely with a lung mass on CT, uh, and it's our obligation. I honestly feel it's our obligation to make sure that those patients have the molecular analysis done uh, and then uh, go off for treatment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it definitely is a critical issue. The landscape has changed, and as the pathologists always say, uh, tissue is the issue. So let's turn to Adam. Um, Adam, what was the motivational rationale for your study? Uh, so uh, Gerard and I are both part of the National Lung Cancer Roundtable uh, of the American Cancer Society, and and working with them, uh, we felt that it was important to define some of the key uh, characteristics of how pulmonologists are functioning kind of in this altered role over the last couple of years. Uh, because without an understanding of kind of each player uh, and how their role is changing uh, in this new setting of personalized therapies, uh, we can't really hope to to coordinate that effort in a meaningful way. So I think this was a first step to help just describe pulmonologists and how they're practicing currently in this kind of constantly involving landscape. Agree. So let's jump into your study methods. Um, what were your study methods, Adam, and how did they address any other limitations in previous studies? So we performed a cross-sectional survey of uh, pulmonologists uh, that are members of the CHEST uh, database, uh, and we sampled over 7,000 uh, randomly in that database, and we had about 450 pulmonologists respond uh, to an electronic survey that survey was uh, intentionally designed to capture kind of key practice composition, uh, like how many lung cancers uh, uh, a physician is diagnosing on a monthly basis, uh, key information about whether or not they perform bronchoscopy with bronchial ultrasound, how many they perform, uh, and then specific questions as to how they perform biomarker testing both themselves and within their institutions um, and their knowledge about individual biomarkers as well. Great. And Gerard, any other uh, pointers on the study methods that you want our audience to be aware of? Well, I, I would say there's two. Um, one is that uh, we really did want to get both knowledge and practice. Um, and, and to that end, one of the key find, one of the first findings that jumped out at me uh, with, with, when you survey a large group of physicians is just how much variation there is in their practice. And just as one example, I think it was, uh, you know, uh, 25% of pulmonologists only see between one and four lung cancers a month, as opposed to some uh, pulmonologists, a small group, I think 10% or so, saw um, more than 10 or 15 a month. So we see that right out of the gate, and that's one of the important things we wanted to capture. What was the age of the physician? How long were they out in practice? Those important components of those demographics before we even got to what's their knowledge of biomarkers. The second thing is, is there's something that gets criticized often, which is that um, these surveys uh, that go out, uh, electronic or paper for that matter, um, really the physician response rate's very low, and so sort of how can you trust that? Um, and what I would tell you is, you know, look, like all surveys, we're looking for trends. We're not looking to see is drug A working better than drug B. We're looking for trends. And I would argue that, you know, uh, nearly 500 physicians surveyed uh, uh, responding is a really pretty good cross-section of the country and of the practicing pulmonologist. Uh, so I think we did do a pretty reasonable job, even though the response rate was low. You'll see that in all physician surveys. I'm not sure we should throw that baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I think that's an important context for our audience to be aware of. So, Adam, let's jump into your key findings. Uh, what was your primary outcome, and what were your findings, and how did you interpret them? So I think, you know, just like uh, Gerard was just mentioning in terms of the practice composition, 
I think one way to really summarize the findings uh, of this paper is to say that we found variation in knowledge and practice kind of across the entire continuum of the pulmonologist's role, not only just in the practice composition, but also whether or not they actually perform bronchoscopy with endobronchial ultrasound, whether they're aware of guidelines, how many passes, how many needle passes they take during bronchoscopy just for the uh, acquisition of tissue for biomarker analysis, the way they coordinate testing within their institution, and their knowledge of biomarkers uh, individually. And so that's, I think, a broad overview is that really there's variation, pretty dramatic variation across that entire continuum of the pulmonologist's role. Um, in addition to, to Gerard's mention of just even just the practice composition, uh, for instance, um, most people, uh, if, if they perform bronchoscopy, made three or four extra needle passes just to collect biomarker testing. But there was a couple groups that made very few, maybe about 10% or less, that made almost no passes for biomarker testing. And then another group that, you know, around 10 or 15%, that made over seven passes just for that extra tissue for biomarker testing, which if you perform bronchoscopy, that's a lot, you know, after you think you've obtained the diagnosis just to, to get that information. Um, and then one of the, I think, really interesting things about the institutional uh, coordination was who is responsible for ordering biomarkers uh, within the institutions. And that was really laid out uh, to show the pulmonologist's role was about a, a third of um, uh, about a third of pulmonologists said, like, they're the ones responsible. And then the rest were split between uh, oncologists, pathologists, and even tumor boards. And so it's really split among those, those different entities at different institutions as to who's providing that order. And like Gerard uh, had mentioned earlier, the pulmonologist does have a kind of a special role if they're the ones diagnosing someone's advanced cancer. And that they're probably the, one of the first ones, first members of that interdisciplinary team to know the stage information, the likely stage of the patient, as well as the newly confirmed diagnosis. So they are really in a good spot in a lot of ways to to know that that patient uh, requires biomarker testing for their for their treatments. Certainly, they probably haven't met an oncologist yet. They didn't have a diagnosis. The the pathologist is also kind of in that uh, in that area of of being um, kind of first to know, but they may not have access to things like the imaging and stage information that the, the, the treating pulmonologist might have. And so those were some of the, the key findings that I think really stood out from, from the study. So, so let's unpack those findings, Adam. What did you take away from um, the fact that there was so much variability in the number of passes that people uh, took um, and also in terms of the volume of specimen that they obtained? So, so that's, um, I think that comes down to the, the way people are trained and, and how much value they place on uh, getting enough tissue for biomarker testing to an extent. Um, additionally, you know, uh, there are going to be people who do and do not have access to rapid on-site evaluation, which can help kind of gauge whether or not you're having adequacy, ad adequacy of uh, the tissue that you are collecting. And so uh, that, that is um, uh, this finding that I think is a little bit value-based and a little bit directed on, on how you were, you were trained for the procedure. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, um, uh, yeah, Gerard, uh, Gerard, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple issues there. One is 
Um, we, uh, we who do a lot of lung cancer have learned that we can get inadequate specimen. And so for uh, one of the study findings here was that interventional pulmonologists, trained interventional pulmonologists who are doing a lot of cancer. So uh, high volume providers, if you will, who are in academic centers um, who do this for a living uh, were the ones who uh, had a, a high number of passes. And it's, I think, because they're at the tumor board, they're working with those folks all the time. And so people who did zero to two passes on their EBIS, um, you know, that's just, in my view, not good medicine. Now, you don't need to be an interventional pulmonologist to pass a needle through a bunch of extra times or somewhat extra times. But I think um, the advancement here, the real take-home message on uh, number of passes is um, we need more. What you hate to do is uh, have to go back and get more tissue from a patient. And so we get patients sometimes for second opinions that have had an uh, some kind of biopsy on the outside, but no molecular marker, or there was a, a non-sufficient uh, tissue to do molecular analysis. And this is just, it's just uh, terrible because it's, it adds to the delay of patients. And one thing that that can add to is them getting started, for example, on traditional chemotherapy. Um, and if, if I could just emphasize one point uh, that we've both been making, um, but put it into context, uh, which is this idea that pulmonologists are sort of the first person to see and evaluate the patient. If we don't order biomarkers or don't have reflex testing in a bronchoscopy lab, which I hope you'll talk with Adam about a little bit more, um, what, what can happen is um, we send the tissue off, the tissue you know, gets processed by pathology, but nothing's really done with it other than it's cancer. And then the patient um, might see the oncologist because we know it's advanced cancer two weeks or so later than that. And then uh, the, the oncologist, the practicing oncologist will then go ahead and order molecular uh, evaluation, which in many places is a send out. And that's another two weeks. And medicine cancer. And again, if you look at psychological studies of patients with cancer, you would think that the most stressful psychological time is right before death. That's what I used to think. But that's not true. It's actually from the time a patient's told they might have cancer to the time of the first treatment is so anxiety provoking for our patients. And so that turnaround time where we're getting our arms around this idea of biomarkers and turnaround time, that turnaround time is critical. And so if we can order or be part that orders immediately when the tissue hits the door in an advanced lung cancer patient, um, we're really serving our patients much better. Yeah, I think it's really important that we expedite the diagnosis and what treatments are available. Um, Gerard, I wanted to ask you about, uh, were you able to survey the uh, pulmonologist about what type of anesthesia they're providing? Is it general anesthesia? Is it moderate sedation? Um, some would argue that uh, you have uh, increased time to sample uh, all the nodes and do many passes if it's under general anesthesia. Did you get a sense from the physicians uh, what modality they were using? Um, we didn't really get a sense from this study. It's a really good question, Dominique. We didn't get a sense from this study. I will say that um, the world of interventional pulmonary is moving more towards general anesthesia in general for EBIS. Um, and I think it's for that reason. A good staging EBIS can take 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Um, I, I will say our lab grew up as a, a non-general anesthesia lab, but we did moderate sedation for years and years, you know, whatever, 20 years I've been doing EBIS. Um, and, you know, for the most part, we're able to make patients comfortable using moderate sedation. Um, we, and, and mostly for us, it was just that we couldn't get general anesthesia to our lab. 
Interestingly, over the last year or two, we've been able to get general anesthesia to our lab, and, and we are doing more uh, of those cases uh, that we know are going to be time-consuming and for patient comfort doing general anesthesia for our bronchoscopy. It is not necessary, though. You can do uh, a really valuable uh, and uh, comfortable EBIS with um, midazolam and fentanyl, and, and we have for years. Okay. Um, Adam, I want to ask you about the uh, biomarkers. So you had said that um, only one-third of pulmonologists order those biomarkers. How did you interpret those findings, and um, does it stress the importance of having tumor boards, of having the pulmonologists meet with the pathologists and the cancer doctors so that they know what they're ordering and so they can expedite the process? Yeah, I think um, I think that, that's, that that interdisciplinary communication really is the key it probably doesn't matter necessarily exactly who the ordering physician is, as long as it's systematic and consistent uh, across, you know, their institution. Um, there may be, uh, you know, research down the line showing that one one provider may be in the best place. I think that's still kind of up for debate. But especially until more uh, systematic uh, means, maybe through an electronic uh, health record, are are available or or reflex testing made available through kind of a pathology circumstance like other cancers like HER2 testing in, in breast cancer. I think until those things are kind of solidified over time, that as long as you have, um, and, and, and you know, we showed that in people who reported an institutional policy, we didn't really define what that policy was in the study. It was more if you have some sort of agreement or policy uh, for how biomarkers should be tested, uh, we did see higher rates of testing and higher knowledge of individual biomarkers. So I think that the, the the policy itself may have an effect, but also it could just be a marker of good interdisciplinary communication and coordination uh, of care. Gotcha. Gerard, what is your take home from that? Yeah, no, if I could pick up, thank you, um, uh, Adam laid it out beautifully. I would say a couple things. One thing that we haven't mentioned that we found in this study is the uh, the knowledge of the biomarkers themselves. And so I think most pulmonologists, if they're having to take their boards, will, will know about EGFR uh, and the EGFR story. And that's an older story, and it was the first FDA-approved targeted uh, drug, but you know now we have so many targets um, that uh, we're now looking at KRAS G12C, for example. And because I live in this world, it's easier for me to uh, to understand and interpret that and stay with the literature. I don't expect pulmonologists to know that, and, that, and this study actually made me realize that. Um, for pulmonologists, they you know may be seeing COPD and chronic cough and and tuberculosis and sarcoid every day and then see a lung cancer. For them, it's not the issue of understanding and knowing which biomarkers to test for. It's understanding that we are at the front end, that we need to help get this tissue um, that you've communicated uh, either separately or at your tumor board about what your testing policy is going to be. So you sit with an oncologist and a pathologist and a pulmonologist, and you say things like, how do you want me to deliver the specimen? What's your medium for delivering? You want an enhanced solution? You want an insidolite? Uh, how many passes should we be sending? Should we keep an eye on how many times our patients don't, get a, what's called quantity not sufficient for testing? Do we send it out? Do we do a 50-gene panel? Um, and that, that's also revisited, right? Because, again, within the last two months, another drug came on board and another target uh, is available for us. And I think that's only going to grow in time. Uh, and so, so this communication piece, we believe, is the really important component.
which is to say the communication piece for us is our nurse navigator. She really uh, shepherds everything through and makes sure that testing is getting done, getting done properly. We know where we're sending it. We know what we're sending it for, but we want to make sure that it comes back to the, uh, to the chart of the oncologist when the appointment's available for them to see their oncologist at the first visit so that they can make, you know, they don't want to sit in front of the patient and say, yeah, I just, I, I don't have all the information I need to give you a treatment plan. So that's kind of where I think this all uh, fits together and we can contextualize it. I don't expect pulmonologists to know the eight currently approved uh, drugs for, uh, that need to, that need to, be. what I do need them to know is what's going on at your institution. How can we do this better as a group? Yeah, it's really important that we stress communication between the pulmonologist and the pathologist and cancer doctors. Gerard, based on your interpretation of the study and what are the current guidelines given by interventional pulmonologists as to the number of passes they should do? Um, I've heard some folks say, you know, three's enough, five's enough, seven's enough. Uh, There's obviously a difference. Uh, well, what would you recommend or well, what data have you seen uh, that would be standard practice? Yeah, so I, I would say, look, the the uh, the data, the actual data, which is largely based on EGFR testing, uh, would be three to four is enough. After four, you're not going to increase your yield. I think that data, though, is inclusive of being, having on-site cytopathology. And so um, here's where I do think there is uh, room for good research um, and uh, good coordination with that research because now, first of all, we're testing a lot more. Um, we are using 50-gene panels, uh, which don't require much, but you have to have enough DNA uh, um, to do the panel. And so w what I would say is if you have on-site cytopathology, there will be times, Dominique, where we're doing a case and they say, yes, Gerard, you have cancer. So my, my uh, cytology fellow we're attending is sitting in, outside the room. Yes, Gerard, you've got enough. It's, you've got cancer. But there's different interpretations of even that. We will say, you know, Gerard, we, we only have a few groups here. It's definitely cancer. We only have a few groups. If I hear that message, I'm going back in and getting more and more and more and putting it directly into cell block um, so that they have enough there to, to make a core and to do the testing. Um, if I if I don't if 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 I if they say look it's loaded up, um, you know the whole specimen's cancer, not even many lymphocytes on it, um, then I, I I might take less. I will tell you though, my general practice, and I think the general practice of interventional pulmonologists now is five or six. And if the patient's quiet and everything's going well, it, it, it's really a low risk procedure. It's an incredibly low risk procedure as far as bronchoscopy in general is concerned. It's an incredibly low risk procedure. Um, get more tissue. How much more? I don't know that we have that yet. I do think it's going to become more. And I do think, I'd hate for us, we've, we've earned over, uh, you know, a couple of decades of hard work and good testing around and the bronchial ultrasound. We've earned the right to have it as the test of choice for the diagnosis and staging of mediastinum in patients with advanced cancer. I'd hate for us to lose that to back to mediastinoscopy, which while it's rare, can have, uh, you know, te you know uh, terrible outcomes. Very, very rare, but, you know, you, you know a, a, a mediastinoscopy is not a perfect test either. And we've, we've largely earned our position as the leading first uh, specialist of choice for patients with uh, suspected lung cancer. Um, so I, I would say more is better. Do we know how much more? I don't yet. I can't tell you that five or six would be better than three or four.
Agree. Yeah, we need to take on the mantle and uh, assume responsibility. Um, Adam, what were the key limitations in your study? Gerard mentioned that this was a cross-sectional survey, and there are limitations with that. But as he alluded to already, um, we'd be looking for trends and observations. So what, what were the key limitations in the study that you want the audience to be aware of when they read your paper? I think uh, one of the other key limitations is is just also the nature of cross-sectional studies and that uh, the possibility of recall bias, um, for instance, uh, or even you know for for instance like the institutional policy piece, whether or not they reported having an institutional policy um, doesn't mean that their institution doesn't have a policy for biomarker testing. It could just be that the participant in the survey was unaware of it uh, or or didn't know. Uh, about their institutional policies uh, for, for biomarker testing. And uh, I think that's probably true of a lot of, uh, of, of the questions surrounding institutional practices, uh, especially, you know, just to that last point about how much, how many passes and how much tissue to get, for instance. We also looked at the number of, of, uh, of tests that were being performed either in-house, in patholo- in-house pathology, send-out pathology, or a combination of the two. And so one of the other complexities here is the different number of and choice of assays to perform these molecular tests, uh, both commercially and potentially in a, a laboratory where you can uh, validate it your, yourself. And so what might be adequate at one institution and what their practices with pathology are may not be true in another uh, uh, institution. And for that question in particular that we asked on the survey, you know, uh, I think that's a tricky question to interpret how how well all 453 pulmonologists knew what actually happens in the pathology lab in terms of in-house, out-of-house, or, or, or a combination of the two for molecular testing. So I think recall bias in addition to the, the response rate, which we've already kind of addressed, uh, would be kind of key limitations. And Gerard, what did you want our audience to be aware of in terms of limitations? Yeah, those are the two biggies. I, t- I would say the other one is, you know, of course, people who uh, uh, answer these surveys are a little bit biased. And so we were overrepresented, for example, by interventional pulmonologists and academic pulmonologists, right? We, we seem interested in this. Now, having said that, I think we actually got good data from those groups, um, and it looked like academics were more knowledgeable um, and interventionalists were more knowledgeable. And by the way, um, years in practice made a difference. Uh, oh, oh, um, those folks uh, out in practice for a long time were more actually more likely not to do EBUS, which makes sense, but also more likely to do a transthoracic a needle biopsy as opposed to EBUS. And, um, and in that regard, um, you know, those patients would get a diagnosis, um, but they wouldn't be staged. Um, but it also brings up another point, which is um, if the issue is tissue, as you mentioned before, um, then we have to make sure that our interventional radiologists are sending those the core tissues for um, uh, for mutational analysis. So that gets at this more institution-wide approach. Uh, and we, uh, Adam and I, uh, are looking at this in our lab uh, and it's part of Adam's uh, um, career development award to really look at um, how can reflex testing and institutional policies, policies improve um, biomarker uh, biomarker testing. But we're believers. We're believers that take the human element out, um, have a uh, have an epic order, if you will, that a patient with advanced cancer, the, as soon as the tissue hits the 
it's the pathology department. Um, they have an order uh, that's written by a, another physician, though, um, and reflex testing just occurs. So, so that was a couple of the other findings. The limitation there, again, being um, who answers those surveys um, is a little bit different than the practicing 18,000 or so pulmonologists in the United States. Yeah, I wish you all the best, uh, Adam, with your work, and it's very, very important. Um, uh, Adam and Gerard, we are drawing towards the end of this podcast, and I do want to give you each an opportunity uh, to leave our audience with uh, concluding remarks. Uh, I'm going to start with Gerard and then uh, end with Adam. So, Gerard, uh, what uh, take-home messages do you want our audience to have, and is there anything that we haven't covered in this podcast that you definitely want them to be aware of? No, my, my take-home message, um, uh, and it'll sound like a, a broken record, is communication. Um, communication, communication, communication. Work with your pathologist. Uh, work with your pulmonologist. I often hear the pathologist, from the pathologist, that they never even meet their pulmonologist. You know, grab a cup of coffee, go to the basement of the hospital, that's where they always seem to be, and sit down with the pathologist for 15 minutes. You'll both get a greater appreciation of each other. Um, and so for me, it's about communication. Uh, and the other thing is that, look, pulmonary pulmonologists are so centrally placed, not just in the diagnosis of lung cancer and staging and molecular markers, but we've often taken care of these patients with COPD for years when their lung cancer is diagnosed. We're in, in screening for lung cancer. We're in managing the complications of lung cancer treatment, such as immunotherapy-induced pneumonitis. I want us to be who I know we are, which is a very proud, very knowledgeable organization who cares deeply for their patients. So this is not, you know, yes, of course, it's not part of this study, but it's the, the, my general hope for our profession that we remain uh, deeply involved in the care of patients. Uh, by the way, that's up to and including palliation for the dying patient with, with lung cancer. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to go off script a little bit, but that's where I think our profession is. And, and I'm certainly proud to be a pulmonologist in the lung cancer space. Well, we appreciate your inspiring words, Gerard. Um, Adam, you've got the final word. Oh, boy. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I was in a, a class the other day. I'm, I'm in grad school, and uh, someone asked, um, you know, every field has uh, rapid advancing technology, et cetera. And they asked me, like, why is this even an issue? How come, how come you know, these, these tests and therapies are so underutilized? And uh, after about uh, 10 minutes later, uh, explaining, you know, the rapid evolution of these markers, of these therapies, just even year to year, you'll notice in our survey, some of the therapies that were maybe promising at the time, uh, you know, by the time that our study was published, uh, they now have FDA approved therapies uh, that was met and ret uh, in particular there. And uh, as I also described to this class, the, the role of not only the pulmonologist, and interventional radiologist, pathologist, oncologist, and the degree that it's changed just in the last you know, 10 years, uh, everyone kind of fell, fell a little silent at the end of the class uh, after I'd given this kind of 10-minute explanation because um, I'd oversimplified it when I was discussing it with them. And so I think it really does show that everything's changed in the way that we that we coordinate this across these many specialties. And I think the take-home message really is what Gerard is saying. It's it's communication uh, because everything's constantly changing, and that's a trouble clinically and also for research because uh, you know we need uh, data over time uh, for each of these kind of tests and therapies. But every year, there's, you know, another couple biomarkers and associated therapies and, and changes. 
And so uh, I think that constant communication, um, always revisiting your policy over time uh, and, and plan with your, your colleagues is, is probably the most critical point of the whole thing. Oh, definitely. It's, uh, we have a very rapidly evolving field here. And as you said, pulmonologists need to communicate and they need to stay abreast of the, uh, the, the data in the field. Um, a very big thank you to Drs. Fox and Silvestri for a really interesting and great conversation. And a very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.